Hi, I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk. Today, we're going to talk about Martin Luther King Day, dream more real every day. Carmi Dillon joins us, candidate for RNC chair. Can't wait to talk with her. In Arizona, Carrie Lake gets a boost and Hobbs keeps bombing. And Tina Peters in the Jericho March. Of course, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. On America Can We Talk, I talk about election integrity, border security, health care freedom, race relations, energy and tax policy, education policy, free speech and assembly, freedom of religion, and all other issues that touch on the God-given right of every American to life, liberty, and the pursuit of their version of happiness. Stay tuned. And hello again and welcome to America Can We Talk and to today's First Five. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Well, it's Martin Luther King Day being celebrated all around our country and parades uh, everywhere and prayer breakfast, all sorts of ways of honoring Martin Luther King. I'm going to quickly remind you of the one beautiful thing that he's so famous for having said, beside, of course, the letter from Birmingham Jail and many other eloquent writings, but his great uh, speech, just short portion of it, I'm going to read and I want to comment on it. He said, famously, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And the reason I want to remind you of those very, very simple words is that, first of all, they are beautiful words. Second of all, they really are what America's founding was all about. They really are the idea of America's founding uh, right from the Declaration of Independence, the notion we're all created equal. And with equal rights to pursue our version of happiness, life, liberty, and happiness, and, and that came from our creator. It's an astoundingly important idea. It was a, a hallmark idea of the founding of America. So what Martin Luther King did in many, you know, over a century and a half later, in bringing that idea out during the Civil Rights Movement, was to really bring America more in line with what the promise of our founding was. He, did, he lived an extraordinary life. He did many wonderful things, and for his push for civil rights, for equality, for ending segregation. I mean, the nation owes him just the deepest debt of thanks. So I'm so grateful for him, for the movement he led, and for that reminder he gave America about what America is supposed to be. It was, a, it was consistent with what America's founding ideas were and are. Also want to add, though, on this Martin Luther King Day, uh, there are two things happening that I think are, um, they bear some commentary. Uh, one is that we had on the show not too long ago a gentleman named Chad Jackson, and he's the producer uh, of the second of the Uncle Tom films. These are films which feature many black conservative Americans, and they're basically talking about their views, why they're conservative, why they support conservative values. The second one, Uncle Tom II, that Chad Jackson introduced um, and, and really was uh, more or less produced, uh, talked about the idea, had a little hint in that film that maybe Martin Luther King wasn't quite the straight and arrow American that he's always honored in being. Well, recently, the Uncle Tom two producers have come out with another, with referring people to another film, which is making the argument that in the latter times, latter days um, of the civil rights movement led by Martin Luther King, he became swayed by ideas that were socialist and Marxist, and that really Marxism had worked its way into his civil rights movement. And I want to just comment about that because I think there's a film coming out about that, another film coming out about that. So I just wanted to say, 
In America, what you're supposed to stand for are ideas, our values, our principles, and you find the best candidate, the best political party, you find the best people to represent those ideas. But we make a mistake when we hold up our past leaders, our current leaders, hold up anyone to some sense of alleged human perfection where once you find one thing that got them off track or one thing that wasn't great about their lives, uh, that we, we kind of shudder and think, oh, that was terrible. It is perfectly perfectly fine, and in fact, good and important to honor without any hesitation, any equivocation, what Martin Luther King brought to America. He led the civil rights movement. He pushed to end segregation. These were enormous step forwards, steps forward for the goodness of America. And even if this research been, that has been uncovered by Chad Jackson, the people who put together the Uncle Tom 2 film, even if it bears out that it turns out as the, the march went on, that the uh, movement went on, that Martin Luther King did begin to embrace socialist and Marxist ideas. You can reject those ideas, denounce that path or step in his life, and still honor the man who was an extraordinary American. I think it's really important to recognize because there's always a push where people will talk for ha perhaps about Martin Luther King and alleged marital inf infidelity. Even if those things are true, the fact is he stood for an enormously important principle, the writing of the ship of America, the getting America back on track to standing for and with the ideals upon which America was founded. The second prick point on this Martin Luther King Day, I just found amazing and wanted to quickly mention it today and we'll probably talk about it. I won't be till next week probably, uh, but Sheila Jackson Lee, who is a member of the United States Congress, she's a black woman uh, from Texas, a Democrat uh, in the United States Congress, has introduced a bill and uh, as far as last I read, she's the only one who signed on to it, uh, but the bill is called Leading Against White Supremacy Act. And in this bill, essentially, she's trying to push for the idea that she wants to criminalize what they define in the bill as hate speech, criminalize hate speech that involves a person uh, who's Caucasian criticizing a person or in any way mocking a person of color if that leads eventually to some act of some hate crime. So she actually is trying to criminalize conspiracy to commit white supremacy inspired hate crime. And I just want to say, for the minute number of white supremacists that exist in this country, white supremacy is an evil, as is black nationalism, as is any politics driven by skin color. It's all wrong. It's all un-American. It's all inconsistent with the ideas of America. But trying to criminalize certain speech because of color is getting America off track again, taking us away from the vision of our founders, the vision of Martin Luther King, the vision of where we need to go in this country, which is to continue to lift up the idea of honoring each other, not because of our, as Martin Luther King talked about, color of skin, but content of character. Sheila Jackson Lee, um, whether she deeply believes white supremacy is a, an enormous problem in America, which she may believe that, I think she's been grotesquely misled by the forces of the left in this country. She really thinks it's a big problem. But starting to criminalize speech in some subjective manner that may have led someone to do something, uh, you end up trampling all sorts of other rights, including freedom of speech. And it really is a, less of an honoring of the idea of Martin Luther King and the founding of America's ideas uh, that we're all trying to honor today. And that, my very fine, fine friends, is today's First Five. So next we have Harmeet Dillon joining us. She's running for uh, the RNC chair, the Republican National Committee chair. 
And the reason that I want to have her on today, I'm just going to quickly tell you before you bring her on. So all that means is, you know, the, the Democrats have a Democrat National Committee, Republicans have a Republican. Uh, it's a large group. It's a group that has, from every state, a Republican National Committee man, a Republican National Committee woman, and the chair of the state GOP party. So those three individuals from each state, so all 50 states, but from each state, there's a group like that, Republican National Committee man, committee woman, and, and the chair become part of the RNC. And the RNC is a, um, you know, they, they meet, I think it's two or three times a year, uh, but it is a, um, it's a central focus for many people looking to what does the party stand for? Is it, it's an organization, I'll let her tell you more about it, but an organization that is um, supposed to be supporting the election of Republicans and the Republican agenda. Uh, Ronna McDaniel is the current chair. She happens to be the niece of Mitt Romney, which is not her fault, but she is. And uh, she is an incumbent running again. And Harmeet Dillon is uh, challenging her to become the RNC chair. So I want to have us talk today with her, what she thinks that job should be all about and why she's seeking it. So let's welcome to the show please, Harmeet Dillon. Hi, Harmeet. Hi, thanks for having me, Debbie. Thank you for joining me. So um, I first want to commend you on your website. Um, you know, I want to hear all about your what your goals are and your, um, your efforts are toward becoming RNC chair. Uh, but your website, which is D-H-I-L-L-O-N, DillonForRNC.com, it really has a lot of energy to it. It has a, has a fresh feel to it. So, yeah, let's just start with why are you challenging uh, and, and wanting to become RNC chair? Well, thank you for asking. And so I've been a member of the Republican National Committee for six years now. And before that, I was the vice chair of the state party in California. Before that, the chairman of the San Francisco GOP. And before that, a volunteer in many other roles as well. So the, I would say I've been in politics for about 35 years as a volunteer, dating back to college. And the reason I am a volunteer in the party is to help us elect Republicans from the bottom of the ticket all the way to the top of the ticket. And for the last six years that I've been on the RNC, we've lost several governor's races. We've lost the White House. We've lost the Senate. We lost the House. We barely got it back right now. And I think we're barely clinging to relevance as a party. And unless we make some serious changes, instead of making excuses for our past failures, we are not going to win in 2024. So it's as simple as that. I believe with my years of experience, I have what it takes to turn the party around to get us into fighting fitness so that we're able to support presidential, senatorial, house, and then down the ticket candidates as well. And we can't afford not to do that. So that is that is the why. I, I love that. And I will tell you that there are many people. Now, I'm, I know everyone kind of runs in their own circles and they tend to talk to people who already agree with them. But I don't think most Americans like the direction of our country and they're looking for leadership. They're kind of waiting for people to stand up. And, and I, I think a lot of people had a, uh, just have a very difficult time accepting uh, what policies are coming out of this current White House and, frankly, whether or not this current, um, he who occupies the White House is supposed to be there. I'll leave that till later. But back to the things to get Republicans elected, what kinds of things did the RNC, is it just really fundraising or do you see more of a, a messaging mission? Well, there's all of these things. Number one, fundraising is necessary, but not sufficient. The bigger question is, what do you do with the money that you've raised? Do you blow it on expensive consultants and high overhead? Do you reinvest it into the states? How much of it do you share with presidential campaigns and 
Senate and House uh, campaigns. And so all of these are questions. But I would say, number one, if you're raising $1.5 billion, which we did in this last election, six years actually, um, half of that was raised in 2020, a presidential year. 20% of that was shared with the states, which is where people actually get elected and where our volunteers coordinate with our paid field staff and, and you know, voter registration people and all of that to get people elected. What, what about the rest of that money? What happened to it? Well, we spend a lot of money on overhead. The fundraising is expensive, I know that, but you're talking about anywhere between, uh, according to the most conservative estimates, 33%, and I would say more likely around 40% of overhead and fundraising. And this is at a time when with digital fundraising being what it is and has been an innovation for so long, we ought to be getting volume discounts. We ought to be getting economies of scale. We ought to be really being able to raise money more cheaply and more efficiently and more of it, but I don't see us doing that. And so without a business woman's eye on what's happening in the office, I think we are really not doing our service to the donors of the party. Donors have lost confidence, Debbie, in the party because of our successive failures. Our response to that is to blame Donald Trump, to blame the Dobbs decision, which we poorly messaged, uh, to blame ticket splitting, to blame Republicans. Uh, and instead, we are also saying we did a great job because we knocked on more doors, we turned out more voters. If we turned out more voters, but they didn't vote for our candidates, that's not success. And the analogy that I heard from another friend who's a football fan said, if you make four, uh, four plays in the fourth quarter, but you don't score, score uh, in that same time, you haven't really moved the ball forward. And so you haven't won the outcome. And you don't get an A for effort in politics. You get an A if you win elections. We should be paying people according to whether we win. We should be incentivizing our employees and our vendors in that regard. We should be holding them accountable. And we haven't done that for six years and we can't afford two more years of this. So that is kind of the, the big picture. All great points. I was going to mention, I, uh, you made allusion to it, but there are big party donors, which of course, every both political parties require, just rely on donors. It's, it's the, the people who really um, are invested in the ideas of the Republican Party. They have started to express, um, uh, they're denouncing essentially Ronald McDaniel, the incumbent, uh, talking about getting kickbacks to consultants, and, and they're endorsing you. They're saying, this isn't the way we should spend our money, which I couldn't agree more. The idea of getting a sufficient, I mean, because Americans donate money, whether you're a big donor or you're you know, sending your widow's mite $10 in, you want to have the uh, feeling that the party goes all out in the most effective way to get victories from House and Senate to the White House, to, to everywhere. You want to see that happen. And the idea that money is going to favored consultants or other people where there's just too much money being spent overhead, it's kind of a, it, it's a really, um, Insult isn't the right word, but it's disrespecting the wishes and the uh, deep desires of the donors. Okay, you have something on your website I want to ask you. You, you, In the very opening line, it says, the base of the party has changed. H how do you think, what, what do you mean by that? Donald Trump did a good job, just like Ronald Reagan did before him, of attracting Democrat and independent voters. But also, we have a lot of Republicans who don't vote. They're registered as Republicans. And they don't bother to vote because we don't have candidates who inspire them. But this is a phenomenon you saw in 2016 at the Donald Trump rallies, is that 
all these people were coming in to attend these rallies who aren't regular voters. We got their contact information in that campaign, and we reached out to them, we motivated them to vote. But if we aren't continuing to give them reasons to vote, they will not vote. Some of them did not turn out in 2020, and we cannot win elections, just given math, without that. And at the same time, we are sort of doing a half-baked job of turning out our vote. Democrats have been laser-focused on that. And so when you talk about candidate quality, which is one of the excuses our current chair has used for failure to win this last election cycle, look at the Democrats' candidate quality. Joe Biden, biggest liar in, in D.C., which is saying a lot. John Fetterman, who could not communicate at all for part of the campaign. Katie Hobbs, who refused to debate. The quality of their candidates doesn't matter because the quality of their machine of getting ballots into the ballot boxes is outstanding. And I'm not saying we should take the same tack and run crappy candidates. I'm saying we should absolutely step up to the plate and perform and excel at the mechanics of voting. We don't have a election operations department at the Republican National Committee. We have some low-level, relatively speaking, lower-paid employees who supported state staff on election integrity. They were treated like seasonal farmhands. They were laid off right after the election for the most part. I'd like to elevate the job, the mechanics of electing people using the new voting systems of no excuse absentee or permanent you know, um, vote by mail, early voting, ballot harvesting legal in some states, and ballot curing for states that rely on mail voting. All of these things are relatively new developments that the Republican National Committee is not leading on training people on. And that has to be not a three months before the election effort. It cannot be relying on volunteer lawyers to drop their laptops and go into the field and you know do free legal work. It has to be an investment. It has to be a year-round investment. And so that's my top priority. Job one is winning elections. Everything else is fluff, okay? Yeah, you know, it's often, I've worked on campaigns here in Texas and uh, variety of things in the Republican Party. And every year, the elections get close, and people talk about the Democrats kind of embed themselves in communities. They're known in the community. And Republicans, I mean, it's, it's like trite to say it because it's been said for so many years. Republicans show up around three months for election day, say, hey, vote for us. We believe in X, Y, Z. And we're not a presence in, in communities where people really might be with us. And I love your point that Donald, about what Donald Trump did. He just made the values of pro-Americanism. He's not even a, a you know, hard-right conservative Republican. He's just a pro-American guy. And he was able to sell that message in large rallies and made people who either hadn't voted in years, hadn't voted at all, used to vote Democrat. And all of a sudden, they heard someone saying, yeah, that guy stands for America. And I think our party, the values of the Republican Party, are exactly what the vast majority of Americans want. They just don't know it, and they get a friendlier face, a friendlier connection with the Democrat Party, and, and kind of more um, just just too intermittent and too um, impersonal connection from Republicans, and then they don't see the reason to go to get out and vote. Um, you can respond to that, but Absolutely. I want to ask you something about the vote, too. Do you have any response to that? Or Yeah, you look, you see the Republicans voting year-round. Uh, I mean, you see the Democrats engaging year-round, like you just said. and. Ever since the election, I don't think the Republicans have actually made any headway with any community. The elections are year-round. Persuading people is year-round. 
I like the fact that our current chair has put a um, few community centers in different communities. But if the way that those are operated are well staffed for photo ops and then non-existent after that, <clears throat> that's not effective. It's almost worse than if you weren't in the community in the first place uh, than to be an itinerant slash inconsistent presence. But we are not using tools like social media uh, influencers in our campaigns the way the Democrats do. We aren't investing in modern tools. Maybe that's because no consultant gets a commission on that. I don't know. But the reality is we are leaving the votes of young voters on the table, most minority voters on the table. We just can't afford to do that in our party. Our, our party traditional base of older white Americans is shrinking. And we have to replace it with younger people and different people and not take anything for granted. Uh, absolutely true. You know, one thing I was going to mention to you is I, before you came on, I was telling our listeners, uh, in case they hadn't been familiar with the process, how the RNC chair is not an elected thing, like it's not going to be in your ballot in primary day or election day. The RNC chair is chosen by essentially Republican leaders, people who've been elected within their states as committee women, committee men, and the state party chair. You have been the committee woman from California. Uh, I was going to make a joke, by the way, when you talked about the Republican chair of San Francisco County. San Francisco, okay, I won't even go there. Because I've heard all the jokes, Debbie. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we've lived heard in all many, the jokes. Okay, I know I know it is, but we lived in California many years and, and have family out there. And I and that is a, I mean, that's a noble thing to lead the Republicans of San Francisco. But back to my point about the RNC vote. I read, and I want to ask if it's accurate, that there is going to be a forum where you and the incumbent, Ron McDaniel, will be able to present your views and arguments uh, to some audience. And Ronna McDaniel wants it to be only to the RNC, the, the, the RNC committee members who be able to vote. And I believe your side was saying, your campaign was saying, why don't we make it public or at least put it out, a live stream, so everyone can hear the views of, of both the incumbent as well as you. Is, is that accurate? Is that what's occurring? And, and where does that stand? Your, your statement is accurate. And also Mike Lindell has qualified for uh, the vote. So he'll be part of that forum, not debate. So not only are we not even having a public debate, we aren't having a private debate. We're having a series of set pieces, and uh, I'm sure there might be a teleprompter there for the chair. I am very comfortable talking without that and, and being you know, sort of free and open with people. And so what I found in this process, and I've never campaigned for RNC chair before, and when Rana became the chair, she didn't campaign for it. President Trump credited her with winning Michigan and helping deliver the White House, and so he appointed her to that position effectively, which we accepted, and then we've accepted it two more times. He's not uh, weighing in on it this time around. But when I'm campaigning, I think it's very important that we dis demystify these exalted political offices. And so I'm actually having town halls all over the country for any state party that wants to hear from me and talking to the delegates, the activists in that party and answering their questions. They can't vote, none of them can vote. But at the same time that we're saying, oh, you know, People don't understand what the RNC does. At the same time, we're not giving them anything to help them understand. We're, we're, we're keeping it as some kind of ritualistic you know, cabal as opposed to transparency that would show the voters and give them confidence. So why should people give us money if we're too good to talk to them? I'm not too good to talk to them. I've been a grassroots leader down in the trenches for decades, dating back to college when I was chairman of Dartmouth Students for Jack Kemp 1988. And I think it is important to communicate with the voters, because ultimately those are the ones who get our candidates elected. And so 
if I am elected chair, we will have a lot more grassroots oriented and transparent Republican National Committee. I love that. I, I love that you would have the um, grassroots more involved. And something else that occurred uh, because the Trump campaign and the way he continued to do rallies while he was president, it made Americans, everyday Americans, feel more connected to their government, more connected to the party, more like they had a role, they had a say. And really, the activism, at least from my perspective here in Texas, activism on the political level, uh, from the range of people showing up at school board meetings to people on the here in Texas, we have a huge border issue. We have people activists on the border. There are more people activated, and I truly give a lot of that credit to President Trump. The kind of the kind of populist reengaging of the people, and I think it gives our party uh, more appeal to people who are maybe not all that political, and if they've accepted the old lore that you know, Republicans are for rich, uh, rich old white people and the Democrats are for the working people, and then honestly, Donald Trump caused a lot of people to realize, well, that's not true. That's not true at all. Well, his policies, they were just pro-America, pro-family, pro-worker, pro-freedom, and people realized, wow, whatever I used to think was wrong. So uh, I can't commend you highly enough for wanting to continue that sense of actually engaging the people, actually engaging them, and make them feel like they are part of the whole process. So, in this election happens, isn't that like next Thursday or something? It's next Friday, this it's January Friday. 27th. Okay, so once that happens, is it instantaneous that you, if you were to win that, you take the seat? That's right. Okay, so then you've got a solid chunk of time. You have uh, almost two years, a year and uh, 10 months so am I doing it right? Yeah, before the 24 elections. So like, what yeah. are the first things you're going to do? Well, I have a transition plan that I'm putting together and I'll be circulating soon. We have members of a transition team. I mentioned one area of reorganization. We need to have a director level position of election operations. Um, I want to do a staff evaluation and self-evaluation and people who are really excited to continue working at the RNC and helping to elect Republicans without enriching themselves necessarily and really focusing on the job for the next two years they'll be welcome to work with us. I'm also talking about um, potentially starting regional offices of the Republican National Committee in the battleground states so that we can hire talent, not just field workers at the time of the election, but actually some of the substantive talent we need at the RNC. We need people in election operations, legal, communications, digital, data. We need all of these fields and we can hire talented people in America as opposed to you know, the District of Columbia, which is not exactly where most Republicans would like to live. So we might get better talent and uh, and more enthusiasm. And look, working at the RNC as a young person is, is not meant to be your life's work. It's meant to be you come in, you do something to help your country and help your party, and then you go on to do something else. That's the kind of person I'd like to have at the RNC, uh, because without competition and turnover, you get stagnation. You get people giving out contracts to their buddies and, and frankly, a lack of competitiveness. And those are not Republican ways of running businesses or running our country. And so I'd like to run our party according to our meritocracy system. I'd like it to be competitive. I'd like us to have competitive bidding. I'd like us to have even an ideas lab or some technology people inside who are helping us develop the best and brightest next apps and technology. But there's no substitute at the end of the day. No artificial intelligence can substitute in your data analysis for boots on the ground. Now, boots on the ground that are partially paid because you need to organize them professionally, but a lot of volunteers. And a lot of volunteers won't come 
if you aren't winning elections, if you aren't talking about the issues that matter to Americans, if you aren't innovating, and if you aren't seeming like you're focused on the future and not the past. And so all of these things are tied together. The lack of enthusiasm is not going to cure itself suddenly in the fourth term of Ronna McDaniel's tenure. Something has gone wrong over the last few years. Whatever it is, we got to fix it, and we aren't going to be able to fix it with the same old, same old. Love that. So tell me, the RNC, when people are elected to it, I mentioned earlier the Republican committee, man committee, one for every state, each person can have up to four two-year terms. Is that correct? No. There's no term limits in many states. In my state, there's no term limits. Other states have term limits. Okay, so it's really up to the state to decide that. Okay, so you could conceivably kind of make it a career in some states, I suppose. I mean, it's not a career, but it's a it's kind of your identity for a long time. Okay. Uh, That's so, actually I, one of the problems. So some people who are there at the RNC for many years are much more concerned about the perks they get as member of the RNC, attending cocktail parties uh, at, at the RNC's expense, uh, meeting politicians, having a title on a committee like Committee on Arrangements, or Site Selection Committee, or Rules Committee, or Resolutions Committee. That's much more important to, unfortunately, some of my colleagues than winning elections and doing what's right for the American people. So that is a problem. Love that. I love the basic notion, kind of getting back to basics. The RNC is there to help win elections. And honestly, it's, it's wonderful to have someone who is really in tune with how unhappy voters are because we're not winning, especially because people don't think that people actually believe our ideas are the winning ideas. They want to see some mechanism, point to something or someone to say, come on, get that message out there. Let the rest of the country hear who we are because then we will win elections. So uh, you, I mentioned your website again. It's Dillon, D-H-I-L-L-O-N, for, as in F-O-R-R-N-C.com. Do we have that, Emilio? I think you're going to put that up. Yeah. Uh, Dylan for RNC.com. So just to read more about her, because I barely uh, scratched the surface information that uh, Harmie Dillon has on her website. But the idea to step up and challenge, uh, even within the Republican Party, to challenge an incumbent and say, I, I think we need fresh uh, energy, fresh ideas. Uh, I mean, it, it takes a little bit of bravery, a little bit of spunk, and a little bit of just love of country and determination. I'm not just going to watch things go the way they have been. So... I commend you for running and um, hope, I wish you, and, oh, wait, wait, you said a minute ago, so Mike Lindell is going to be, he did qualify to be part of the forum. He did. He's qualified to be considered for chair, and so that means that two members each from three different states uh, signed his nomination paper. So the three of us qualified. I, to be frank, I, I love Mike. I think he's, you know, got a lot of great ideas and energy, great marketer, and has been a very substantial donor, particularly on election-related issues. Um, I don't think there's a lot of support in the committee, quite frankly, and so it's really going to be between uh, me and, and Rana. My support is rising every day, and frankly, she's stalled out, and I think she's currently at below the number she needs to win in the first ballot. And we have enough time in 12 days to keep picking up steam. I've got at least a dozen members uh, who are working around the clock with me, whipping votes, helping me out with phone calls. Uh, two of the three members from Texas are supporting me openly and have endorsed me. The Texas GOP Executive Committee also has uh, supported a change in leadership there. The third, uh, who is the National Committee woman, is uh, supporting Rana. So that's something to, to think about why that would be, because we haven't had good results in the last six years. 
Well, all I know is I think that people who love this country, especially if you got inspired by Donald Trump, inspired to think you'd have some role in this country, and the, and the country was, you were sensing pride in America coming back through the uh, Trump campaign, his messaging. I think people are just waiting for some energy to come out of the RNC. Sounds like you have that energy rocking and rolling, and I, I know you're probably very busy, many, many calls and interviews like this. So, Harmeet Dillon, thank you so very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Debbie. Have a great day. Great to see you. Okay, my friend. So I will tell you, this is going to be, um, you know, I know it's a little bit inside baseball. I was talking to a, another talk show host uh, yesterday um, and said I was going to have Ron McDaniel on. I mean, excuse me, not having Ron McDaniel on, having Harmeet Dillon on. Uh, and the response was, well, you know, all, all I care about the issues, 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 issues. And I do, you know, I kind of thrive on issues on this show. But it is incumbent on people who, if you, care about these issues and you, you work hard and you're laying your issue to recognize there is a responsibility at the high levels in Washington, um, at the RNC, at the uh, Senate Republican uh, Central Committee, at the, at the House Committee, House Republicans Committee, to be leaders, to step up and not just to keep on sending fundraising emails, which they are really good at, but instead sending emails saying, Here's what we stand for. We need you to help us. Are you with us? How can you be involved? And I'll tell you the volunteer thing. I hear stories from people who say, well, I volunteered. They'll especially say about a campaign. I volunteered in so-and-so's campaign and no one ever called me. I mean, people want to feel that they're part of the solution. They're involved. And I do think that what you heard Harmeet Dillon talking about, engaging people in a, um, an ongoing way is vital to introducing, reintroducing energy into uh, the campaigns we're following, uh, reintroducing energy into the idea of the ideas of the Republican Party. Not that every single Republican always follows through on them, but the ideas of the party, they are identical with the founding ideas of America. This is the party, it's the only party trying to hold on to the idea of America as founded. So, that was Harmeet Dillon. She's running for RNC chair, and we'll find out in two weeks who's that's going to be, who's going to have that job. Okay, I want to um, turn to two things, and these are kind of both amazing things, So, and I'm having fun with these. Uh, one is, has to do with Carrie Lake, um, and um, she, as you, um, you know, I'm going to sit, because someone was just sending me something right before we went on. Hey, you should talk about this. Really helpful, because I can't uh, get to it quickly enough, but okay. So, um, so in... Um, so Carrie Lake, as you know, ran for governor of Arizona. Many people, myself included, feel absolutely sure she won. Uh, just election integrity problems, unbelievable election integrity problems in Arizona. So Carrie Lake is not surrendering. She's not just deciding, well, you know, I'll just go walk away and be quiet. She's speaking up. She's challenging. So right now, where things stand, um, she had, as you likely know, a trial. She challenged the outcome. Um, she, Carrie Lake, challenged the governor's race outcome in Arizona. And the trial court, I think it was like the day before Christmas or something, or the, anyway, um, dismissed. I mean, she presented tons of great evidence, really pretty irrefutable, and the judge just wasn't going to go along with it. So uh, they uh, concluded um, that the that she, her, her case was not to be successful, her election lawsuit. So the judge ruled against her, and that case is now up on appeal. One small thing that has happened is the Arizona Court of Appeals has ordered an expedited conference to be set for February 1st in her historic lawsuit to overturn the, my words, botched election in Arizona. And so 
This is good. She's not getting an immediate dismissal by an appellate court. She, Carrie Lake, the court is saying, you know, there's something here to look at. And the people who've looked at this evidence, I have not read every bit of evidence, but I've read summaries of the evidence. It was overwhelming. The election was just a, a farce um, in Arizona, especially Maricopa County. And so she, Carrie Lake, is continuing to pursue uh, to challenge it. Um, and so they're putting February 1st as the next hearing date, as an expedited conference, uh, which means they're going to listen to more of what she has to say. This is good, and this era of kind of the uniparty cabal running everything, uh, election fraud kind of baked into our system, you need people like Carrie Lake tenaciously and just relentlessly willing to push their challenges uh, in order to make it even uh, possible to get a court to listen. So that much is good. Um, and uh, she's, she's you know, got a very positive attitude about it. Uh, by contrast, uh, the alleged victor of the Arizona go governor's race, Katie Hobbs, as I mentioned many times, kind of like the race between Biden and Trump in 2020, where you know Trump had massive energy, massive rallies. He could get 40 or 50,000 people to rally with one day's notice, and Biden sat in his basement and well, kept his mask on and ran, did not run a campaign. Well, it was very similar in Arizona. Katie Hobbs hit out, the alleged governor um, hit out, uh, didn't campaign hardly at all. I, I mean, literally, she was the, and she is, by the way, to be really clear, she was then the Secretary of State, so she's overseeing her own election. Why could that be a problem? And so she is like letting the, uh, you know, the owner of the um, any team, you know, football, baseball, the owner also be the umpire. You know, you wouldn't do that because you would recognize a conflict of interest. But anyway, so Katie Hobbs, uh, now in office, she's alleged governor of Arizona. Um, she has proposed $40 million in taxpayer money to essentially expand illegal aliens attending state universities. So among her first moves is Democrat George Soros-funded Democrat Katie Hobbs in Arizona, one of the first moves to uh, make it even easier for illegal aliens who have no legal right to be here to go to college there. Uh, she's also in her new budget. She rolled out her new budget. She proposed eliminating Arizona border security. You know, because the feds are doing such a good job. Why should we need Arizona's own people? I'm not joking. This is, you know, you used to think that these radical leftists, these globalists, which is, if she's got George Soros funding her, Katie Hobbs at George Soros funding her, she has the machine putting her in office when she didn't win. So you have her in office. I mean, I, they used to try to hide how leftist they were and pretend that they're kind of moderate. You know, there's a really nice Democrat, just like your grandmother was a Democrat, but they're not even trying to hide it anymore. I mean, her first actions in office are to go ahead and make sure she can figure out a way that the um, um, that you can get $40 million for in-state college tuition for illegal aliens, and her first budget propo proposes eliminating border security. I mean, in Arizona, as you likely know, is one of the four border states directly bordering on Mexico. So I'm telling you this just to say it's really important to understand these leftists are not hiding who they are anymore. So Hobbs, in case you had any doubt, she is not uh, coming out moderate. She's not coming out saying, well, of course we have to have a strong border. I just don't agree with, you know, Carrie Lake's position on blah, blah, blah. She's saying... Yeah, I'm right with the Biden team, and I know they abandoned the border. That's what she's saying. That, that, that is now the governor of Arizona. So, uh, you know, people don't like it, uh, and I think, you know, I don't know what the courts will do there, but I, I cannot commend Carrie Lake strongly enough 
for continuing to fight. She is articulate, she's well-informed, she has data, she has, I mean, she's got everything on her side uh, except the courts. Okay, and a similar um, uh, kind of women fighting, which I just love. I love, when, I, I love, you know, conservatives who love America. I love seeing them fight for America. I love that. Um, I will do want to draw your attention also to what's happened with Tina Peters. And, and Tina Peters, to remind you, uh, she was a county clerk of Mesa County, um, Colorado. So she's in Colorado. She's a county clerk. She's the one, Tina Peters, who, as county clerk, had responsibility to oversee the elections. So 2020 elections come along. She didn't see anything terribly amiss in the 2020 elections. Her county uses Dominion voting machines. But shortly after that, there was a vote which she was also responsible to oversee, and it was for the city council for the city of Grand Junction, Colorado. Population about 80% Republican. So you have city council seats open in an 80% Republican district, and uh, all four Democrats won. The Republicans running in a Republican county all, uh, city all lost. So, you know, she's smart enough, Tina Peters, to say, this doesn't sound right. So, cut to the chase, she ended up um, pursuing uh, an effort to figure out how this, what she th thought was obvious, election theft um, had occurred. So she looked into it a variety of ways, and um, what she, so what's happened with her, very, to quickly summarize, I think you all know this story, but I'm getting to what's happening now, which is just magnificent, magnificent. So what's happening there is, um, she was charged, she, so she realized this had to be the case. She's uh, concerned about the Dominion voting machines, and in the, and her job as the secretary, um, the, uh, as the um, county clerk for Mesa County, Colorado, she's supposed to be responsible for securing the voting machines, and Dominion voting machines were coming in, in to do what they call a trusted build, trusted build, meaning the Dominion voting machine people are coming in to do whatever it is they do to their own machines. So she, um, Tina Peters, um, decided we needed, she wanted to get inside and kind of take a, a screenshot. It's, it's the equivalent of a screenshot. It's like a, taking a picture of the graphics inside the machine uh, before the trusted build and after the trusted build. So she could see she's got what's inside the machines before and then Dominion comes and does a trusted build and then takes a picture afterwards and has someone, a computer forensic style expert, compare the data from after, after the trusted build and before. So she has those two pieces of data. She gets them off to some experts who produce what has now come to be called Mesa County Report 1, 2, and 3. Mesa County Report 1, 2, and 3. If you just Google or if you don't use Google, whatever you use, look up Mesa County Report number 3. And in it, they spell out what they believe, these experts believe, based on the data that she gathered, that the Dominion voting machines were part of an effort or were used in an effort to bring about the theft of the election of these, these people, these um, people who are running for uh, the city council in Grand Junction. But the larger point was this, this uh, analysis of the two voting machines, uh, the voting machine before and after trusted bill, 
allow these people to be able to, these experts, be able to spell out, here's what we can see from the data inside the Dominion voting machines. Here's what we can see. And this causes us to believe that the Dominion voting machines are hackable and that in this particular case, there's evidence of, of just of, of invasion, of hacking in, and changing things. I'm going to leave it that vaguely, but to say, I urge you to read Mesa County Report number three. So she, Tina Peters, thinking everyone's going to want to know this. We now have evidence. She first, so before she even pursued that effort, she went to her superiors. She went to whoever it is um, in, the, um, in Colorado, in her own county, and said, we ought to be taking a look inside the voting machines because I think there's something really amiss here. She's going in like a straight shooter, assuming they want to know whatever happened. So she's asking, I believe it was the, the equivalent of the county commissioner's court, but went in and said, hey, you guys, you know, we should get try to figure out what's going on with the Dominion voting machines. Well, there is a law, as there should be everywhere, um, that you aren't supposed to allow access to inside the voting machines, you know, to just anyone. You're supposed to protect the access as though physical access is the only problem. And so she made that effort. They did not want to do it. They wouldn't help. They wouldn't look into whatever was going to be inside the machines. So then she, she eventually brought around to having someone get in, an expert get in, uh, who could get inside the machines and take those pictures, those images. And so she, Tina Peters, is the one being prosecuted. And she's not being prosecuted. It's really important to understand. She's not being prosecuted because the two reports, or the Mesa County Report 1, 2, and 3, the comparisons of before trusted build and after trusted build, no one is questioning that the evidence she uncovered is inexplicable. No one is questioning the authenticity and the accuracy of what, was, what she obtained through having someone access to the Dominion voting machines. No one's questioning that what she uncovered pretty much makes it, you know, almost irrefutable or at least highly likely that these machines were somehow tampered with. So instead of people saying, thank you so much for uncovering this astonishing election, uh, you know, evidence of election fraud, she's being prosecuted as for two things. And I want to explain to you what the two things are. I'm getting to an amazing story that's happening. Uh, and by the way, you, won't, you can't even find this story online. I'm only, I'm, I know this because I'm in touch with Tina Peters and she sends me stuff all the time. But the two charges against her are essentially trying to influence, wrongly influence public officials when she first went to them and say, hey, don't you think we should look and try inside these machines and try to figure out what's happened here? So she's looking for truth. She's looking for accuracy. She's looking for proof. And she's the one responsible for these elections. And she's asking openly, don't you think you, wouldn't you like to help me get proof? So that's her first crime, was uh, trying to influence, wrongly influence public officials. And the second one is allowing the unauthorized use of credentials to get digital images of Dominion machines. And that's what this person did. They got, I, I said it's kind of like a screenshot. It's a digital image of what was inside the machines. So the person who got that access apparently um, did not have, wasn't authorized to do that. Please let this sink in before I tell you what's happening. So to let that sink in, she's the one that uncovered what is now evidence that no one is arguing is false. No one's saying, oh, but the, the conclusions are inaccurate. No one's saying that. They're saying she tried to get the truth. 
That's what's wrong. That's her crime. She tried to get the truth. She facilitated finding the truth. That's what her crime is. So she sent, so I want to tell you a couple of things. She sends me these messages all the time. So she has two trials coming up in um, Colorado. Uh, one um, is coming up very soon, January 26th and 27th. So there's two charges I mentioned. I mean, let me make it clear. There are more, um, the, the two things she's being charged with, these are the two actions that she took. They can manage, as any good prosecutor can, to find seven ways that, you know, these individual actions she took constitute a violation of a whole bunch of laws. But in any case, the first trial, January 26th and 27th, two-day trial, uh, and then the second one is in March, March 3rd through the 14th, an 11-day trial. And so she's got these trials coming. These are criminal prosecutions. This is not a lawsuit. This is criminal prosecutions being fomented and enabled by the people who allowed and were fine with the elections that obviously had all the earmarks of having major dishonesty uh, baked into them. These people aren't complaining about or questioning how in the world did four Democrats, mostly unknown, win the four open seats in an 80% Republican county. Nobody's thinking that's really, like, maybe we should look into that. They're looking into her because she found the evidence. So what's happening there, so she's got these trials coming up, and one reason she has told me about this, she'll tell me about this, is there are people in the left-wing media in Colorado who continue to write stories about her. And so, you know, there's nothing else she's doing. She's waiting at home for trial. She's, and by the way, she's, she was on my show, I don't know when it was, months ago. She's a fabulous person. A, just, a, just a kind of patriot person you'd want to step up and run for county clerk, which is, which is you know, a mostly thankless job. Not glamorous, doesn't get you invited to anything fancy. It's just county clerk. It's a very hands-on job that she ran for and won. And she tried to run, by the way, for Colorado Secretary of State. Uh, there she ran for that, where she would have more authority to look into the elections to try to fix the election system there. Ran in a primary, uh, which all the polling appeared to show she was going to win hands down, and, and she came in third, which a whole other suspicious thing. But here's what's happening. It's so cool in Colorado. So those of you who are uh, students of the Bible, uh, you know they, um, there's a story in the Bible um, about how these people, uh, um, the Jer they're calling this a Jericho prayer walk. The Jericho prayer walk. And these people are walking around the circumference of the courthouse where she is going to be tried, January 26th and 27th. They're walking around the circumference of the courthouse. And she actually sent me a very lengthy list of the prayers they're engaged in, of the statements they're affirming about what's true, and, and you know, that we need to see um, God's servants, God's children with honesty and decency. But they're doing a Jericho prayer walk. Um, and um, I can't read you the whole long thing from Hebrews uh, and Luke and Job and Isaiah, but basically uh, they are walking, they're trying to make a public statement about we the people of Colorado, we are right with you, Tina Peters, we are right with you. We see what's happened and we are supporting you and we know what's happening and they're telling, it's a message to the court system, it's a message to the uh, government that it, it still has power there, it's a message to many people. You might think you're winning because you've got her sitting in the hot seat as, as, a, as a defendant in a criminal prosecution, but we the people of Colorado, we see what you're doing, we know it's wrong, we know what you're doing is wrong.
So they're doing that. And I started to say a minute ago, the reason they're doing it in part is there are more than a few people. There are more than a few people um, in the uh, journalists or alleged journalists in Colorado who are endlessly running stories for no reason. Nothing is happening in the case right now. They're just waiting for this trial to start, running stories, running her down, accusing her, Chena Peters, uh, making really strong statements about her obvious guilt. I mean, they're just running story after story, and what they are doing is tainting the jury pool. The jury pool is going to be pulled from people there. And there's no reason to be running all these stories because the facts aren't changing. They're just waiting for trial. But this is what she's watching. Tina Pierce is watching. She's a deeply Christian woman. She's asking for prayers. She is counting on prayer. She's a, a, just a, a deeply devoted Bible reading, uh, Bible studying, Bible believing Christian asking for support. And she has these left-wing journalists in Colorado writing hit pieces and attack pieces, obviously tainting the jury. And yet these people, her supporters, who understand what the truth is, they are doing the Jericho walk round and round and round and round and round um, of the um, courthouse. Uh, and really, it's not just uh, to get the attention of the courts and potential jurors, but just the, the average, the people see this and what is going on here? Um, and they, they have a long statement. I won't read it all, but at the very beginning of it, to Colorado officials, you have taken by lawless hands, Tina Peters, but it's not possible she should be held by your pains of death, nor is she to be made subject to your corruption. Her redeemer lives and is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. The commander of heaven's armies is his name. It goes on and on and on. But I kind of like this because it's a unique form of protest. I'll tell you something else. So Tina Peters texts me this thing. So I'm looking for it online, going to find some stories. I thought maybe I'd find pictures I could show you. You can't find any coverage of this very big ongoing event. No coverage. It's like it doesn't exist. It's like they disappeared, these people. It's kind of like if you try to look at mainstream media to look at the protests still ongoing in Brazil, because no one in Brazil, uh, I mean, the people know in Brazil that Bolsonaro won. They know that Lula is a communist placed in that, in that position by the CCP. They know this. The people who live there, who lived through the election, who watched the, the campaigns, they know what happened. And so, and they're protesting, but the media, if you actually pay attention to what is covered, you would think nothing at all is happening. You'd think nothing at all is happening, but it is. And I'll tell you, just like Carrie Lake, Carrie Lake standing up in Arizona, Tina Peters standing up in Colorado, even Donald Trump continuing to talk about election fraud, these people, these are the heroes of our time. Bolsonaro, all of them. Because what they're standing up against is not just... I lost my election and I know I really won. It's a larger and bigger pushback. It's a larger and bigger pushback against the whole notion that in this world, elections shall be rigged here and henceforth. Everyone puts up with it. Everyone tolerates it. Nobody tries to change it. This is what they're pushing back. And, they're, and the American people who do understand the scope and depth and, and just, just you know, criminality of election fraud, we need to see these people, all of us who believe and understand the, the scope of election fraud, should be seeing all these people as heroes. Carrie Lake, Tina Peters, 
Bolsonaro in Brazil, Donald Trump, anyone else still in the fight to demand that we have fair elections. I think I'll, I'll keep you posted on what happens at Tina Peters, uh, the Kerry Lake, of course, we're gonna hear, that's a, a, a hearing coming up soon, February 1st, keep your scope on that. Um, I, I wanna, I, I just wanna keep praising and honoring and publishing these people because the mainstream media will never tell you about them. Uh, you know what, in the last minute and a half I'm gonna do today before we uh, go to my usual show ending, I first want to thank everyone listening on radio. You're listening to Debbie Georgiatis. My show is America Can We Talk. Our website is americacanwetalk.org. If you like this show, if you love what I do and appreciate what I do, I urge you to do three things. Number one, you can go to my pillow. My pillow, you can put that little flyer up if you would please, mypillow.com. My Pillow is a wonderful organization that sells all sorts of great products, you know, sheets and towels and, and bathrobes and slippers. It is Mike Lindell's organization, My Pillow, great quality products. My husband and I buy all of them, not all of them, we buy every, we bought many of them. Go to mypillow.com, place an order, and when you are checking out, put in the promo code DEBBIEG, D E B B I E G, DEBBIEG. You get up to 66% off of your order, and I get a small commission from them. I urge you to go to MyPillow.com because that's one way to support this show. I also urge you, as I'm closing out before I get to why it matters, to go to our website, AmericaCanWeTalk.org. At the website, you can sign up for our free newsletter once a week, and the newsletter is soon changing. A newsletter, you can become a member, and you can also make a donation to keep this show rolling at AmericaCanWeTalk.org. I close out every show by telling you why the stories that we talked about today matter to you. So we start our show today um, talking about Martin Luther King Day, dream more real every day. Martin Luther King was not a morally perfect man, and his thoughts about Christianity, America, and liberty, socialism, may have been articulated more or less persuasively at different parts of his life, but his letter from a Birmingham jail is an American classic to be judged by the content of our character and not by the color of our skin. This is the timeless American and Christian ideal. Martin Luther King should be forever honored for voicing it. Neither cancer culture, CRT, revisionist history, nor bizarre statue in the Boston Commons, I decided not to even show that gross thing, bizarre statue in Boston Commons should be allowed to obscure the good that Martin Luther King contributed to American culture. Martin Luther, MLK Holiday provides a valuable prompting to look at the whole of MLK's contribution. And Arizona Carry Lake Boos and Hobbs Bombs, Arizona Appellate Court has agreed to expedite the hearing of Kerry Lake's case. This is far better for Lake than a decision to let the case lag as just another appeal. It shows interest. Katie Hobbs is acting with an ugly attitude of defiance toward the people of Arizona among her first acts as alleged governor in a rotten election, provide $40 million in tuition aid to illegal aliens to attend college. I forgot to tell you this one. She also ordered schools to indoctrinate around correct use of pronouns. Now, there is a top priority when you're a border state. Uh, you've got to get those pronouns straight. Arizonans know the 22 election was stolen. 2022 election was stolen. Hobbs is an illegitimate governor. Hobbs rarely shows her face in public because she knows the election was stolen. The only question is whether Arizona appellate judges or any judges anywhere in the USA have the moral courage to do justice in the face of, obvious of the obvious truth.
And on Tina Peters and the Jericho March, Tina Peters, ordinary American patriot citizen and election clerk of Mesa County, Colorado, acted on rational suspicion of 2021 election results and ended up exposing the ways in which elections are manipulated and stolen using electronic voting machines, i.e., Peters exposed election fraud in detailed ways which have not been and cannot be refuted. Peters' actions are horrific. Excuse me, excuse me, so sorry. Peters' actions are heroic, heroic and bipartisan in the service of preserving America, yet Colorado's alleged election officials are ordering and facilitating the prosecution of Peters for asking the Board of Supervisors to look into what she found, as if the mere questioning of an election is a crime in Colorado, allowing the use of an IT badge to facilitate a forensic, forensic exam of election machines. Colorado's prosecution, or persecution, should we say, of Tina Peters is unconscionable. It is a vivid illustration of a legal system that's completely unhinged from respect for truth. It is not surprising that many Coloradans have rallied to her, even staging a Jericho march. And that, my very fine friends, is America Can We Talk for today. Thank you so very much for tuning in every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time to America Can We Talk, where I always talk truth about America because America matters. And I will talk to you next time. Can we talk truth about America? Can you hear